Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards, pureandsimplebible.com. So thankful to have you with me. Thank you for being a loyal listener. For those who've been with me for a while, hey, if this is your first episode, I'm glad you're here too, but you should probably pause it. This is part three of a miniseries. You need to go back and listen to part one and two first. We are talking about A King in His House, a book that my dad wrote, and I've been interviewing him about over the past few episodes. We're talking about David, this great king of the Old Testament, but also, and more importantly, the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7 and Jesus. That's what this one's about, Jesus as the son of David. Let's jump back into the conversation and enjoy what the scriptures have to teach us about Jesus Christ as the son of David. You know, a Jewish follower uh, in the first century, um, whenever they pick up this Matthew scroll, you know, or whenever the, a copy of the Matthew scroll comes to um, their local church and, and they're going to listen to it, the opening line is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, I, we've talked about this uh, in our home congregation recently, so it's kind of fresh on my mind. But to someone who's listening to this program, Dad, the son of David and son of Abraham are uh, going to be very special to that first century Bible student, whereas in the 21st century we might um, not see it as much except for the first line to a genealogy. And hopefully, as people are listening to this podcast, they're they're picking up on this theme. But can you just take a moment and, and talk about what it means for Jesus to be the son of David? Well, it's it's a fulfillment of, you know, that, that great promise. But it's also very special to those people in the first century. They're looking for the son of David. Now, this the son of David has kind of evolved over the over the centuries from back earlier in history when it first was discussed. And, and initially they thought that the son of David was just a, a physical descendant of David, just another human. And they thought maybe he'd be a great king. But with the the foreign powers continuing continuing to control Israel, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, they, they begin to think that we need something stronger than just a just a, a king. And so he became supernatural and powerful. And so by the first century, people are looking forward to the coming of this individual, this one that they think will be a great king. And for many of them, they thought that he would be a great king that would deliver them from, from Rome. That was, that was probably the major thing they wanted to be delivered from. They wanted political deliverance from, from Rome. But it was an exciting time to people in the first century. And that expression, the son of David, you know, especially sort of summarizes the, the hopes and dreams of the people of God in the first century, that he's coming, this son of David. And so they're, they're thrilled and excited. You know, it's, it's interesting that, that the title, the favorite title Jesus used for himself was son of man. Right. That quite often, I don't know the exact number, but a lot of times he calls himself the son of man. But the title son of David was especially important 
for the people of Israel because right. he was the one they were looking forward that would be coming. Yeah. Let me uh, just mention a few of those. Now, you, you cite in your book that the expression Son of David occurs 18 times in the Gospel. It's 10 times in Matthew, so, you know, more than double uh, the amount of times the phrase is used is in Matthew's Gospel, which um, many scholars believe is was written to a Jewish audience. So uh, there should be something that a Jewish reader would see in that that's special. But I find it interesting that uh, Matthew 9, 27, two blind men call him son of David. Matthew 12, 23, the multitude says they're amazed. And they said, could this be the son of David? And then the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 says, have, have mercy on me, son of David. Um, which that one's kind of per- particularly interesting because she's a Canaanite. So it's almost like the Philistine, you know, calling mm-hmm. the uh, Jewish person, you know, bringing back that David and Goliath geopolitical struggle. Uh, let's see, two more blind men in Matthew 20 said, have mercy on a son of David. And then the multitude um, in Matthew 21, when he comes into the city, says, Hosanna to the son of David. So I, I remember when I was reading your book the first time, uh, again, it was one of those aha moments where this had been a phrase that I'd kind of just, plowed through, getting on to what I thought was, quote-unquote, the important stuff. But all along, uh, this is there's some energy to it. The, the local population, uh, some of them are calling him prophet. Some, you know, the, 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 the few are calling him son of God, but there's a lot of people calling him son of David, and that's almost as dangerous as calling him son of God. There's a, there's a lot of energy in that phrase. Um, does this energy, uh, does it carry beyond the Gospels? Do we find Son of David going after his death, burial, and resurrection? Or is that kind of the end of it because he's fulfilled his job and then, you know, now he's the Son of God? Well, it goes beyond the Gospel accounts. It goes beyond Matthew. Matthew especially, like you mentioned, kind of stresses that point. Matthew stresses certain things. It seems like uh, he he kind of arranged his gospel to accomplish certain things. And one of the things that he does is that he does stress that Jesus is the son of David. It, it's used in the other three gospels as well. And it's also used in the, the, the epistles. Probably not as often, not quite as common, but there are occasions where the idea that Jesus is the son of David is mentioned in the writings of Paul and some of the others as well. But again, the emphasis really seems to be placed upon that first century because this wonderful plan was coming to accomplishment then. All these promises that the people had been looking forward to had been debating and discussing, these were about to happen. So this was an exciting time for those people. It was a thrilling time. And so this expression, son of David, just ignited a fire among them. And as you mentioned, and even among some of the Gentiles, that Canaanite woman you know, was a Gentile. She evidently had heard of this from someone else, but she latched onto it real quick. And she was caught up perhaps in the Messianic uh, fervor as well that was going on. So it was, a, it was an exciting time. And this, this expression 
helped to keep that excitement going. There is a phrase, or rather there's a, a scripture that is quoted, and and you're going to have to help me with this, Dad, but I believe it's one of the most quoted Old Testament scriptures. And uh, it's Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And it doesn't use the phrase son of David, but in Matthew 22, uh, Jesus asks the Pharisees the question, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? And they say the son of David. And so then uh, Jesus uses Psalm 110 verse 1 to, you know, Ask them, he's having them explore, how could uh, David call him Lord? Or if, rather, David calls him Lord, how how is he his son? And it says no one was able to answer. So Jesus uses Psalm 110, um, but that's not the only time it's used. And my question to you is about in Acts 2. So going beyond the Gospels, beyond the people saying it's the son of David, Peter preaches about the son of David, and specifically with Psalm 110, uh, verse 1. So I guess uh, my question to you is is about David's throne and what's going on in Acts 2. Uh, so help me understand Acts 2 and David's throne, but then also, you know, kind of zooming back, what is David's throne and, and how is Jesus on David's throne? What should I be expecting or thinking about when I think of Jesus on David's throne? Am I am I looking for like a physical return where he's going to be there, you know, ruling in on David's throne in Jerusalem? Uh, and if not, what is it? I've just asked you a ton of questions. I hope <laughs> I hope that you're able to get through them. I can re-ask them if you need me to. Well, you may too need to, but I want to begin with that Psalms one ten passage up here at Little Rock. We are studying the Book of Psalms on Wednesday nights. And it just so happens that this last Wednesday night, my chapter study, wasn't chapter study, Psalm, was Psalms 110. So it's kind of timely how this How providential. Out. Yeah. Now, let me say this about Psalms 110, which I found really interesting. Psalms 110 is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament okay. or in any other one. And in fact, Psalms 110 may be the most quoted passage of all the Old Testament in the New Testament. Now, I, I'm not 100% sure on that because there, Isaiah 53 may have you know several quotes as well. And if it's not the most, it's one of the most. Sure. It's quoted four or five different times, and then it's alluded to several times as far as sitting on the right hand of God. Right, right. So like you say, Jesus used that in his, his dealings with the Jews. They had asked him four questions. Going back to Matthew 22, they'd ask him four questions. They they were out to trap him. You know, every every little group had their own question to try to trap Jesus. He answered all of them. And then finally, Jesus went on the offensive and he asked them a question. His question was about the son of David and David's Lord. Well, the answer to that question that he asked them is that David's Lord was the Messiah. And the only possible way to understand this was that he was deity. And the Jews weren't about to say that. 
they were not about to say that the son of David, the future son of David, would be deity. So they were quiet. They wouldn't answer that. Now, going to Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. As we know, thousands of people have gathered there. and This is, this is the birth day of the church. The church comes into existence then. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The apostles have spoken in tongues. Large group of people has gathered around to see what's going on. Peter takes advantage of this and preaches the gospel to them. And he tells them, first of all, in verses 29 and the verses after that, that, that when David had foretold that someone would be resurrected, that their soul would, that, that they would not be left in, uh, their soul would not be left in Hades and they would not allow their flesh to see corruption. Right. That this right. was a prophecy of Jesus. It wasn't about David. David was dead and gone. Yeah. He wasn't there. And that's, that's, uh, that's, that's Peter's point. This can't be about David. David's dead. His, right. his burial place is here. But it's about Jesus. And he says the point to all this is that the son of David was going to be raised to sit on his throne. And that throne would be the throne of David. Mm. This individual that had been foretold that for centuries would be coming was one that was going to be raised from the dead for the purpose of sitting on God's throne. Now he continues, and he's got to prove that's Jesus. Now the Jews might agree and say, yeah, the Christ, that's the Christ. The Christ is going to sit on David's throne. But they don't believe Jesus is the Christ. And so Peter then mentions in verse 32, this Jesus, notice he he shifts from Christ, where he's been talking about Christ, to Jesus. And he says, this Jesus has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. The apostles were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. There were 11 of those men at this point, or 12, since the new one had been added. And they were eyewitnesses to that fact. So one proof that Jesus was the Christ was the 12 eyewitnesses, and others as well, perhaps. But the second proof was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. The second witness that Jesus was to Christ was the pouring of the Spirit. So there are two unimpeachable witnesses here, the apostles and the pouring of the Spirit. And these prove that Jesus was to Christ. And at this point, Peter brings up that passage in Psalms 110 again and quotes it and says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the first Lord mentioned there is God. And the second Lord mentioned there is David's son, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. I'll just simplify it. What it's saying here, God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, mm-hmm. we've already been told that he was raised to sit on David's throne. And now God says, sit on my right hand, share in God's reign, right, and rule over God's people. What this is telling us is that the throne of David is not some literal throne in Jerusalem or anywhere else on earth. 
it's actually a symbol. It's actually a metonymy where one thing is named to suggest something else. The okay. throne of David is named to suggest the authority, God's authority, God's rule, God's reign. And that reign comes from heaven. When Jesus sat down on David's throne, again, that's used symbolically. It's referring to Jesus reigning on God's right hand from heaven. So we can say, in a sense, the throne of David's in heaven. It's not a physical throne on earth. It's a symbol of the reign of the son of David over his people. And that's currently going on. That was announced on the day of Pentecost. And so Jesus today sits on David's throne, ruling over God's people. So we're not to expect then this return of Christ to sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem and, and kind of have a physical reign on the earth. Rather, we're intended to see, you called it a, did you call it a metonymy? Uh, yes. A metonymy or uh, something of, of Jesus has the authority of uh, God. And that makes me think of his final words in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. All authority has been given to me. So if he's sitting at the right hand of God, then that's you know synonymous with having all authority. Is that right? He has all authority, and he's not going to be given something new, something different than what he already has. Okay. Well, I got two more questions for you. Um, and, you know, people really need to read the book to get, I guess, the meat of this. I'm, I wanted to talk about it because I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I think you, you helped me understand the Davidic covenant in the way that I hadn't understood it before. But one of the things that we mentioned um, earlier in this conversation was that David, as a shepherd king, was a kind of a shadow, right? He's foreshadowing to Jesus as a shepherd king. And I'm wondering if you could maybe speak for a moment about those, you know, bullet points that we had about David and revisiting them, but about Jesus. How does Jesus protect and unite, etc.? cetera? Uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about that. Both men, uh, David and Jesus are considered to be shepherd kings. When when David was anointed king over all Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that's one of the things that the men of Israel said to him, that, that we want you to shepherd us. They, they understood that concept. When we get into the New Testament, Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd. You know, in John chapter 10, he's called the great shepherd, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. But he's also a king as well. So he combines both of those elements as well, a shepherd king. The beauty of a shepherd king is a shepherd king is not a tyrant. He is not a difficult, cruel, mean, savage king, you know, that throws his weight around and makes life miserable for everybody. But it's the picture of a king that also involves the idea of someone that loves and protects his flock and serves his flock and helps his flock and feeds his flock. That's the idea. Now, when you think about David as a shepherd king, we've already said David defends 
the people of God in 1 Samuel 17 against right. Goliath. In a sense, Jesus, the great shepherd king, defends his people as well. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, you'll remember that he's the one that protects us from the devil. He's the one that died and destroyed the power of the devil. The devil. Secondly, we saw that David united his people when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Well, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 16 that, that Jesus unites all people in the church, especially Jew and Gentile. He's made them one body. He's broken down that middle wall perdition and made them one in Christ. We've seen that David extended grace as a shepherd king to Mephibosheth and others, no doubt. And the same thing is also true of Jesus. Jesus, our shepherd king, extends grace. In John 1 and verse 17, the Bible tells us that law came through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus. So he extends grace as well. David, the shepherd king, volunteered to die in 2 Samuel 24, which we've alluded to. We know that Jesus not only volunteered to die, he did die in our behalf. Right. And it wasn't something that he had to do. It's something that he volunteered to do. And then just one other point. David, as a shepherd king, gathered materials for the temple, prepared to build the temple. And concerning Jesus, we can say that he gathered materials for the church, first of all, by gathering the 12 apostles and teaching them. But Jesus also built the church as well. So there, there's this parallel between David as a shepherd king and Jesus as a shepherd king. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm going to, I don't know what scripture I'm going to do it yet with, but in my Bible, I've got, um, well, I might have already done it. I need to go find my, I have a journal Bible that's got the really wide margins. In Second Samuel 7, I may have already done it, but I think I left it in the house. But if I haven't done it yet, I'm going to find a point in there. Maybe it's Second Samuel 7 or maybe uh, in Acts 2. And I'm going to write that T-chart that compares David and Jesus as shepherd kings. Um, I love it. I remember you gave this as a sermon series at the Green Oaks Congregation in Arlington, um, was it, was that a year ago that you did that? Uh, it was, uh, it'll be two years. It's been like a year and a half. I think it was well, in October or November. Right. And I, I remember you kind of went through these points. Uh, you know, you, you preached through David and then Jesus as the shepherd King. It was a great series. I guess maybe to wrap this up with dad, um, I really like the question that your final chapter asks, and that is, what does the Davidic covenant mean to me? And, I, you know, people are always going to be interested in that. Here we are so far removed uh, geographically, culturally, in, in time from these events. And so, you know, that question, what of it? So what of it? What is it supposed to mean to us? Well, the, the Davidic covenant, among many things, is a testimony to God's faithfulness. God keeps his word. God said he'd do it, and he did it. You know, as humans, we're not always faithful, not that we necessarily plan to be, but sometimes thinking things happen beyond our control that, that we can't control. And we make a, make a promise to someone, and may, we may fully intend to keep it, and something happens providentially, something happens beyond our control, and we can't keep that promise. It's not that way with God. 
God made this wonderful promise. And it's for our good. And God kept it. And so just kind of a superficial study of the Davidic covenant helps us to see the, the faithfulness of God, how faithful God is. But there, there's another thing that I wanted to say about this as well. And that it's something that we need to make personal, these these special promises. Let me back up just a little bit on this. Okay. Say something and then, then end with the point that I'm going to make. Sure. There, there, I think there are two key thoughts for us that come out of the Davidic covenant. And one of them involves salvation and the other involves the Lord's benevolent rule. Now, one of the things that the Davidic covenant teaches us is our need for salvation. It's equated with salvation. You know, we need salvation. When we talk about man's greatest needs, man needs, uh, man needs help from, from the environment sometimes. Man needs education. Some people think education is one of the greatest needs. Right. Maybe health care, maybe uh, uh, food, maybe shelter greatest right. physical needs we have. But the greatest need that we have is salvation. We need mm. to be saved from our sins. Mm-hmm. And we can't save ourselves, no matter how hard we try. Right. And one of the truths that comes out of the Davidic covenant is that this son of David is also a savior. That's the thing that Paul taught in Acts 13 when he preached a sermon at Antioch of Pisidia. He's describing Jesus. And he says, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And so in this context, dealing with the son of David descending from David and being the great Messiah, Paul Paul specifically mentions he's our Savior. And so the, the Davidic covenant stresses the fact that Jesus is our Savior. But it also stresses the fact that he's our King. You know, we need a king. We really do. We need somebody that can lead us and guide us because we mess things up. We tend to go the wrong direction. Bible says it's not in man to direct his own steps. Bible says there is a way that seems right to man, but the end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. That describes us pretty well. We tend to go the wrong direction. We tend to look inwardly and make ourselves king and put ourselves on the throne that's in our heart. But we really need a benevolent king that leads us and guides us in the right direction. And Jesus is that king. And so these are our two really important points that we glean from the the Davidic covenant. But I really kind of want to close with this one thought. Okay. I want us to make it personal. I want it to make it meaningful to us. And all we sometimes make it general in the sense that Jesus came and died for everybody, died for the sins of the world. That's true. Jesus died for the sins of the world. But make it personal. Jesus died for me. You know, in a sense, don't think about anybody else. Now just think of yourself. Jesus died for me. And Jesus is the king for me. Now, that's a, that's a wonderful I thought. I, I may not be able to understand all of his workings and everything, mm-hmm. but I can understand that he did things for me. Make the Bible personal. Mm-hmm. Make God's promises personal. 
make them meaningful. I, I guarantee you, if you can make these promises personal, they'll become meaningful to you. God promises me hope. You know, in a world that's that's just full of despair. God right. promised me an eternal life. Right. In a world that's controlled by death. God mm-hmm. promised me love in a world that basically shouts hatred. Mm-hmm. God's promised me peace in a world that only gives strife. That God promises those things to me. So make his promises personal mm. and, and they'll be helpful. Amen. Amen. Well, that if somebody wanted to buy a copy of your book, uh, what, what could they do? Well, just get in touch with me. They can either text me or email me or call me for that matter, one way or the other, that any way like that. I have some, I have some copies here at the house. I'll okay. be happy to send them to you. And if somebody doesn't have that info, they can always email me at pureandsimplebible at gmail.com and I'll pass along the info. So, well, thanks, Dad, so much. This has been, I've been wanting to do this for a while. Uh, I read your book, you know, right when it came out and I knew I wanted to, um, I wanted to talk about it on this format, but I do hope that people would read it um, and so that they can kind of get a fuller picture of it. So hopefully they'll listen to this and that'll motivate them to, read the book. Thank you very much for coming on and talking with me today. Well, I appreciate it, Jonathan. I appreciate the work that you do and, uh, you know, thinking about you and David and all how, how you were little bitty kids growing up and the, the great men that you've become. It's wonderful to, to see the transition from kind of wild and crazy kids to responsible adults and good dads and good husbands and good church leaders and all it's it's really a blessing to me and i appreciate appreciate you and your brother very much well that does it for this mini series on a king in his house talking about the davidic covenant and the son of david i really hope you enjoyed that as much as i enjoyed the conversation this podcast uh mini series was stretched out across episode 200 201 and 202 but it's one recording And that recording lasted nearly two hours, and there's not a single part of it that I had to cut. This was one long, extemporaneous conversation about um, a king and his house. Now, I shouldn't say it's too extemporaneous. We did have a few bullet point questions to go through, but uh, I invited Dad on. Dad recorded with me via Zencaster, but none of it was edited out. There's no pauses or anything. And so that does happen from time to time, but you know, I'm always wanting to brag about my dad. So thank you, dad, for coming on and thank you for being able to record and talk about this subject so deeply and so thoughtfully. Uh, I hope the listeners appreciate it as much as I do. I love you, dad. So that is that. And now we are done. I want you to go to the website, Check out all the resources that pureandsimplebible.com has for you to utilize and use absolutely free. And always remember, God loves you very, very much. And I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true. 
about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.